Welcome to Stories from Foster Care. I'm Neve Barrett, and in this episode, I speak with Paul Harrison, a retired social worker who has occupied many different roles within the care system in Ireland. When you're recruiting for foster carers, um, you're not looking for sainthood, you're looking for ordinary people, you know. It's just that ordinary homestead that uh, can bring out the best in children. In our conversation, we talked about his book, which is called Hanged If You Do. He shared some of the experiences from his career as a social worker that have stayed with him over the years. It's a very, very difficult thing to remove a child from its family, uh, particularly against the will of the parents, you know, which often I've done, you know, uh, entering people's home with maybe a couple of guardi and a warrant and removing their children. It doesn't get more personal than that. And he spoke passionately about the need to go back to basics in the childcare system. So, Paul, welcome to the Stories from Foster Care podcast. Thanks for coming in. Delighted to be here. And you have a unique perspective on uh, the care of children in this state. Um, And I thought rather than me introducing all of the things to our listeners that that you've done and and been involved in, how would you describe your your work life in relation to how would you sum it up if you could? Well, it's difficult to sum up, but I suppose I started like many social workers uh, just on on, on the front line, uh, primarily involved in child protection and and welfare and um, did that for a number of years in a number of places and really, I suppose, worked my way through the ranks then into various management positions, you know, but uh, basically it's all about uh, the protection and welfare of children, no matter what particular role you have, you know. So you were involved in the health boards and then you were involved in the establishment of Tuzla as well at that time? I was. There were a number of um, incarnations. It started off with the the health board system and later then around 2000 we had um, the the Eastern Regional Health Authority which lasted for a short amount of time and then moving on to the HSE, you know, so I I survived these various incarnations, you know, we seem to be in a a constant state of change. Um, for a decade or more, you know, but uh, I ended up, yeah, um, um, on the the initial management team which established uh, Tusla. Uh, we were in shadow form within the HSE for about a year before it went live on January 1, 2014. But um, yeah, that was a great experience. And I'm just wondering, what drew you into social work? Yeah, well, I, it was a roundabout journey in, in many ways. As, as a school leaver, I was more interested in writing than anything else. And I actually went into advertising for a few years. Uh, in fact, I, I, I at one stage I was working with Joe Duffy, who ended up taking a similar, the broadcaster Joe Duffy. We ended up taking a similar route because he went into social work as well at the same time. But um, I, I did that for a few years, advertising, and then I volunteered like many young people did in Dublin at the time with the Simon community. And I worked in the night shelter there one night a week. And um, the office had about two or three people working full time and a vacancy came up and I decided that I'd um, go and do that for a while and change the world within a, a year or two. But I, I got the bug at that point then with Simon and um, I uh, went and trained as a social worker. So I was 23 before I went to college um, and so it was a circuitous route and then I ended up in, in old money, what was called the, the Eastern Health Board, uh, working as a child protection social worker. Your book, Paul, that came out last year, uh, 2021, is called Hanged If You Do. And in that, it's it's a wonderfully vivid 
uh, account of many of the experiences you've had during your working life and the title itself points to the difficulties of social in social work part of social work and what kept you going through all of that time yeah well it's it's a difficult area of work but i suppose in terms of what kept me going would be a, a conviction that um um somebody had to do it as it were and um just the basic concept of, of uh, protecting children from harm is such a fundamental thing, you know. Just the conviction in getting that right, I suppose, is what kept me going. Uh, it's a very, very difficult thing to remove a child from its family, uh, particularly against the will of the parents, you know, which often I've done, you know, uh, entering people's home with maybe a couple of guardi and a warrant and removing their children. It doesn't get more personal than that, you know. So you, you have to be absolutely convinced that you're right, uh, in the decision you're making, you know. Uh, but um, I suppose it was that conviction that kind of drove me. And um, I suppose the belief that um, somebody had to get in there and do that piece of dirty work, really, on behalf of society. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So are there experiences like that that stand out for you now that that may you may not have realised at the time, but sort of looking back may have been forks in the road for you in your in your professional life yeah there there are a couple of um significant milestones over the the four decades or so um certainly when i started in the late 70s um it was all about child protection and um it was in the wake of a couple of major scandals in in the uk and a lot of the original senior social workers uh, that set up the service in ireland had come from that environment you know so the focus was very much on society protecting children from parents who were seen in some way as inadequate you know and um, what the Americans call a kind of a gotcha approach, you know. Uh, there was nothing helpful about it, you know. So the, the the vibe really was that I would go into somebody's home and say, you're a very inadequate parent and if you don't get better, we're going to take your children off you. And somewhere along the line um, between, I suppose, um, the evolution of thinking and in particular the um, publication of the Task Force on Child Care in, in 1980 was a, a landmark uh, where it, it really put family support on the, on the agenda, you know. And suddenly we had to have another look at this, you know. And uh, instead of the, the kind of jackboot approach, it was we, we, we kind of flipped to um, I'm here, uh, how can I help, you know, as opposed to the, the more um, policing role that we had adopted before. That, that was a major landmark, you know. And I'd have to give great credit to the the senior social workers who in the early 70s established the social work service within the old health board system, you know. Uh, Most of them, if not all, had come back from the UK from that environment, but they they were really the pioneers of what what we are all doing today, you know. Uh, And there was literally um, a couple of handfuls of staff compared to the thousands that are around Ireland today. Jumping to the very end of your book, Paul, just just prompted by something you said there, you end the book with this quote. One manager turns to the others and says, what do you think about forgetting the whole thing and just going back to trying to help people a bit? That your approach back then was, how can I help? I'm here. How can I help? What has happened in between, in your view, to, to move away from the simplicity of I'm here, how can I help? 
Yeah, I make the, the point in the book that um, over those four decades or so, uh, there's been a major shift whereby the services are now very highly regulated and um, very heavily managed. And I suppose it, it's that move into managerialism that maybe um, in retrospect, I think, has gone a step too far. I think um, obviously we have to plan if we don't plan, we just resign ourselves to be at the mercy of events. But um, but in in that that it shouldn't be over the top in relation to the the level of widget counting that I see now, uh, where where children seem to be uh, get less mention than than uh, particular targets and um, activities and all the rest of it. You know, so a little bit of the humanity has gone out. I think with the rise and rise of managerialism, and I suppose I was taking a poke at that in in the, in the book and saying it would be nice to refocus and remember why we all came into the business in the first place. Yeah, sure. Something that I sometimes sense is around, and I, uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on it, is this uh, concept of risk as a sort of, uh, somewhat of a barrier, like organisational risk, the possibility of legal action of some kind. Uh, it, does that does that resonate for you as, as, as a kind of possibly negative development? It does, but I think it's part of that um, managerialism thing that I think has has. Um, gone too far um, the concept of risk management I mean the idea of minding and protecting children is the business of risk management you know um, but um, I think a whole industry has, has grown up around that you know uh, so I, I think it can be taken too far I mean essentially um, you know wh- when you're recruiting families I mean there wasn't there was a book I think or certainly um an academic course back in the day called uh, Recruiting Safer Families. No, we were, it wasn't recruiting safe families, you know. So, and the same applies um, to the social workers. Social workers, uh, you know, occasionally social workers can be a threat to children as well. So those threats are there, you know. Uh, they're there in society uh, and it's not... Um, it's, it, so social workers and foster carers are part of society, so there's going to be some bad eggs as well, you know. So I, I, I think we, we need to balance that kind of fear of risk, you know. But really, child protection is all about taking those risks, measuring them, and then taking them, you know. So um, I, I wouldn't be phased by that, you know. And um, I, I, particularly for foster carers, uh, you know, n- not to get too hung up on that kind of as, as a concept, you know. I think that's important, you know when we think of risk we often think about risk avoidance right yeah rather than risk taking which is yeah. is a, a very different way of, of of coming at it yeah it is yeah i mean I, I think that that's the point you know and sometimes uh you know you, you'll have hickwood then say inspecting the tusla you know uh, which is their job and that's fine you know uh, but some of the the shortfalls that they 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 come up with um probably sound like enormous risk but in fact are maybe are not you know where where, where for example you know particular intervention may be outside a timeline it's not going to it's not going to affect the child greatly you know so I mean and and I think it's important that while we're ticking off all these boxes that we don't lose sight on the core task of looking after children I think that's the important thing and and sometimes risk management can become um, a means of it on its own And I hate to see that, you know. I think that's when we start to lose the plot, you know, and um, and where where this rise and rise of managerialism takes hold. 
Mm-hmm. And and it takes up so much time for social workers, right? It does, yeah. It takes a huge amount of time, and and then you find that the eye is taken off the ball then of of the the core business of childcare, in terms of the accountability of ticking the boxes. You know, it it, it drives me nuts. You know, and it's it's very, it's very hard to how do we get back to basics? You know, which comes back to the. The, the scenario you were mentioning earlier in the in the book, you know, it's about trying to get that balance and really just keep the focus the whole time on, on what we're all there to do, you know, which is looking after kids. Do you have a sense yourself of what getting back to basics would look like? What, what needs to happen? I think um, to keep it as, as simple as possible, you know, and in the, in the context of, of, of foster care, as I say, that, that relationship between the social worker and the foster carer is very important, you know. And what I'd, what I'd be to, to saying to foster carers in that situation is uh, to realise your own importance, you know, and not to be phased um, by the, the state side of that uh, relationship, you know. They are the, the, the key players in, in that relationship and, and nothing happens without them opening up their homes and their hearts to a large extent to the kids they look after you know and uh, and to to feel that sense of their own importance you know i think that's that's very uh, that's vital in the task of of foster care this is rick panza this is raymond nolan and you're listening to the stories from foster care podcast be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so so how could social workers or social work in, in a broader sense help foster carers to to experience that importance i suppose it's coming back to to kind of balancing that pa- partnership you know and um to be less concerned with the uh, the rules and the regulations uh, which tend to stifle um good interventions you know and to keep it focused on the, on the needs of the child and the relationship between the the foster carers and the child and the and the the social worker and the child and to keep that that little triangle of relationships at the fore uh, and, and to be less worried about um, the ad- administrative um, requirements that um, tend to drive that relationship too often. Mm. And and something we we come across a lot is that sometimes the relationship is, is um, interrupted. Social worker turnover is a big is a big issue as well um, for foster carers and obviously the children too and not, not to lay everything <laughs> social workers sort of door but but how do you view that that problem what's your perspective on on the turnover issue yeah it, it is a problem and it's a problem in, in not only within in relation to alternative care and foster care you, you see it in child protection as well you know people say after a couple of years you know what there's an easier way of making a living you know so I, I think there needs to be greater emphasis uh, from an organisational point of view on the retention of staff and what that what that looks like. So it's it's minding staff maybe a little bit more uh, and making it a bit more palatable. Uh, and there there may be also a case um, for for financial incentive in terms to keep people in in that particular line of work because the social workers largely they they come into say Tusla uh, the the state organization and very many many of them vote with their feet and and go into um 
uh, more therapeutic environments which are challenging but not as challenging you know uh, and there's a big drain of staff into that uh, kind of um, that employment pool so I, I think um, recruitment uh, but then after that retention and a lot more uh, attention paid uh, to, to minding staff not suggesting to us that don't do it but maybe to do it in a bit more of an organised and systematic way you know and there's plenty of evidence to show that social workers leave the, their jobs much more because of red tape than they do because of um, other, uh, because the nature of the work. It's more the, 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 the bureaucratic elements of it. You know, there's plenty of research to, to, to suggest that, you know. That's interesting because it was my impression that people might burn out through secondary trauma or you know, the difficulties of what they're meeting, but it's actually the red tape. Yeah, red tape is a, can, can be a killer, you know, that um, I, I, to a lot of people, yeah, it's just, I suppose it's kind of the final straw, you know. But there, there is, a, there is um, there are certainly elements of uh, vicarious trauma in relation to the work. I mean, I, decades later, still can wake up with the start in the middle of the night uh, thinking about things I've done or have been done to me, you know. And it doesn't, it's not necessarily violence. That's easy. Um, uh, it, it's more the psychological um, battles that sometimes go on, you know, that can be, uh, and the, the major trauma that can occur uh, for people in, in love triangles or um, that sort of thing, you know, that can have a, a massive effect on not only the child but um, and the foster care, but the social worker as well, you know. If it's okay to ask you, and it's fine if it isn't, could you tell me about something like that without obviously going into the the minute detail, you know, but but what would be such a thing, an example of something that, that would land on you like that years later? Yeah, I can remember uh, taking two kids into care in an emergency situation. Uh, we suspected that they were being sexually abused and uh, we brought them for assessment um, uh, which at that time was undertaken in the Rotunda Maternity Hospital. It was uh, uh, before the. It was a, a forerunner of what uh, what exists now. It was determined on that day that the, the children were being were being abused, and should be taken into care straight away. We acted on that. I went back and uh, we got an emergency care order. I arrived up around uh, dinner time to the flat where they lived um, with, um, as I recall. Um, two uh, Garda cars <laughs> and uh, we entered the house uh, with the warrant and uh, two or three Garda. One of the children hid in a wardrobe, the other was under a table. I had to physically remove them and then the, the father had to be restrained um, by Garda. He was pinned on the ground as we put them at the back of the car and drove them away. Um, I mean, it's hard to imagine the intrusion into everybody's life <laughs> that that causes, you know, including the neighbours, I can tell you, who were all out on the balcony. I followed that up then the following day um, by visit. They were placed in a, in a children's home initially. Uh, I followed that up the next day um, to, to, to see how the kids were getting on. Uh, the little girl was about seven or eight. And uh, when I arrived, she hid behind a door uh, when she saw me coming. Uh, because this all-powerful person who plucked her from her world was back and what was he going to do next, you know. Uh, that stays with me, you know. Uh, uh, you learn from it, of course, as well in terms of trying to do things more sensitively. But um, uh, it's a brutal business when it comes down to that. And uh, But you just try and say to yourself, driving home, somebody had to do it, you know. How do you cope with it when it comes back? Well, you... you, you 
I have developed um, a pretty good uh, Teflon outer layer, you know, uh, which you, you need to do. So it, it needs to wash away on the drive home to a large extent, you know. Uh, and um, so you develop that tough outer layer. So you try and depersonalize it, you know. Uh, it, it meant that um, for years and years, um, I would never watch a drama on the telly that had anything to do with childcare. But also even um, I could never watch television programs that to do with um, accident and emergency departments because it was the same vibe. <laughs> I thought, no, that, this isn't entertaining. This is dramatic, you know, um, and I, I can't do it. So um, I, I sheltered myself from that and, and just um, enjoy family life and, and, and hobbies and things like that, you know. But as I say, things do pop into your mind and your dreams. You'd be amazed, you know, years later, you still think, oh, God, I remember that, you know. But uh, that's why it's so important uh, in retrospect when you look back to say, uh, at least I know I was right, you know. And occasionally you'll get um, kids who had been in care who might phone you up and say... Uh, you are great, or, or thanks very much for doing such and such. You know, it, it's a, a massive reward when that happens. You know, uh, admittedly, usually it's the opposite, <laughs> uh, but I I like to remember the good bits. You know. <laughs> yeah, very wise. Do people get in touch to to give you the opposite? Sometimes does that ever happen? It it, it does, yeah. But usually at the, at at the time, you know, like uh, I've been belted about the place many's the time you know or threatened assaulted all that sort of thing um, mm. uh, it goes with the territory but um, yeah I mean um, or you'd get um, I suppose in the old fashioned thing what they you'd call poison pen letters you know anonymous letters going in say telling me how bad I was about certain things but sure look at um, uh, you get that in all walks of life you know and um, you just have to keep going you know and um have a bit of courage in your own convictions, you know. It does strike me that it does take a lot of courage and to be the person driving away, <laughs> um, you know, telling yourself somebody had to do it, somebody had to advocate for the child. Yeah, I think uh, you really do have to, to believe that you were right, you know, particularly uh, on that crucial thing of separating a child forcibly from their parent. It it, it doesn't get more personal than that, you know. And, um, you know, um, it, 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 it's it's traumatic for everybody, yeah. So, so you, you have to do that with a degree of certainty, you know. And the other thing you have to balance is... Um, is is it going to have the desired effect? You know, uh, and it's it's another issue with care. Uh, you know that we don't know enough about how well care works. You know, so I'd like to see a lot more kind of research gone into that in terms of what works best and all the rest of it. You know, we take for granted that um, when we remove a child from a dangerous family, that we will heal them uh, or make them better, but that often the damage is done and the last thing you want to do is pile on more damage you know but when it's all over and the child looks back was it better i hope so you know mm. thinking of a, a child leaving a situation like that and coming into the home of a foster carer carrying a lot of trauma possibly even pre-birth trauma you know mm. and all the way through uh, and what a complex relationship or task it is for the foster carer then you know to, to receive that do you feel that foster carers are informed enough uh supported enough i mean let me put it another way what would you say to somebody who is considering fostering yeah i mean well go into it with your eyes open and make sure that you don't have too rosy a picture of of uh, you know changing 
the world or even the life of a couple of children, you know. I mean, you're getting the loan of some children or a part of their lives uh, and be realistic about the task when you go into it, you know. As you as you suggest very often, the damage is done uh, before they arrive, you know. Uh, so I, I think that realism is important and, and to, to, to maybe lower your expectations a little bit. But open your home, open your heart. It, it doesn't... Um, it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist, but it does take that enormous generosity, you know, and um, hopefully the rest will follow, you know, and, and there have been great experiences. Uh, there's one I recall that I, I tell in the book where, again, we took a child into care in traumatic circumstances, but the point I wanted to bring out in this instance was that when I visited her the following day, um, she was sitting up with the foster carers having her breakfast and was charmed with the whole idea of a square meal, a clean bed and um, people who were minding her. And she said to me, um, um, if my ma uh, comes to visit me, is it OK if I ask her, can I stay for a bit? You know, and so um, she wanted um, she knew um, that, that she was onto a good thing and, and that, that they were foster carers who, who continued to took her in the middle of the night. Uh, and ended up minding her for several years, you know, and it was a great success story, you know, met all the all the needs and, and put a, an awful lot of that hurt behind, you know. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that that square meal, that predictable meal time, that clean, but it counts for a lot, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. And the, the, just the the ordinary minding of, of people, you know, and having that that open heart and and, and and not being worried about, don't get too therapeutic about the whole thing, you know, just do what you do naturally, you know. And uh, when you're recruiting for foster carers, um, you're not looking for sainthood, you're looking for ordinary people, you know. As Geoffrey Shannon often says, you know, it's ordinary people doing extraordinary things, you know. Uh, but it's it's just that ordinary homestead that uh, can can bring out the best in children, you know. Mm. When relationships between social workers and foster carers are going well, what does that look like? Would you say? I think it. it I think it looks like a partnership. I mean, obviously, um, the. Um, this, the social workers have a statutory obligation and, um, that, 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 you know, there's a certain amount of authority goes with that, you know, but I, I think, and I've looked back on this in terms of my own relationship with foster carers and that the, the best relationships were with families that where there was a, a quite an equal partnership, you know. And there's no point in calling ourselves. It's not a friendship, you know. But that doesn't mean you can't be friendly, you know. Uh, but 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 it it it's it's a partnership in which I think a little bit of um, equality needs to be there, and to recognise the the enormous natural resource that that um, that foster carers bring, you know. Uh, and, and I think and, and and to respect that, and and to give a proper voice to to foster carers. What would you say to a social worker who was uh, qualifying and considering going into uh, child protection or specifically fostering social work? Yeah, I'd say, yeah, you're, well, prepare for a white knuckle ride, I suppose, you know, but but uh, that, that being said, um, I think that there, there are massive rewards to be had, I think, if people stay at it, you know. Uh, uh, my advice to them would be... Uh, to keep your eye on the ball and that's the the child and, and not to be um overwhelmed by the administrative requirements of the job you know to keep to keep focused on relationships and and nurturing those um see the foster carers as partners 
and it's very important I think for new social workers all social workers not to see them um, foster carers mainly as service providers they're more than that you know they're they're, they're partners uh, uh, in 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 care and um and not to see them um as uh, as one might view um a commercial enterprise or something like that it's a lot more personal than that you know but uh, go in and enjoy it uh, but um don't be overwhelmed by the uh, the business end of it and, and keep focused on and probably why you went into it in the first place, which was the, the humanity to make life better for a couple of people, you know. Paul, it's been wonderful to talk to you and uh, I feel like we could talk for hours. There's so much in your book. I really want to recommend it to people, Hanged If You Do. I think it's by, published by Orpen Press, available in all good bookshops. But before we come to a close, just to ask you, is there anything you would like to add or anything you would like to say? No, I just uh, I'm looking to the the future of foster care and what that, what that would look like. You know, I, I there are a couple of things that I would like to see. Um, I'd like to see um, more specialist foster care being developed. You know, where where if you look at um, some of the placements, uh, children might be in foster care for a long time, and when they come into adolescence, and um, the, the difficulties arise, and the the placement may break down, and then move into into um, residential care I, I think you know maybe to to in, invest in more specialist foster care placements where, where a little bit of training uh, for for some cohorts of foster carers could be provided to 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 keep those placements going you know I also see a trend currently in residential care where it's now it seems perfectly acceptable to um, place children under 12 in residential care. In, in my day, there was a, you'd need a special dispensation from the department to place a child of, of 12 or younger in, in, in residential care, where now it's, it's taken as a given. Uh, I don't like that trend. I think that I think foster care works particularly well for younger children, and then they can grow into their adolescence and teenage years much better. So... Um, I'd like to see um, some um, foster parents being given um, maybe a little bit of specialist training um, that would assist. And also uh, a bit more research, as I say, to, to figure out what works best for the kids. I, I think we're, take, we're making presumptions that care works uh, when it doesn't work all the time, you know. And I, I think we need to uh, lift the bonnet on that um, a good bit more going into the future. Wonderful, thanks. I hope I hope those are taken up. Um, and th- again, thank you for uh, talking to us and, and sharing your your wisdom, your experience, your perspective. It's it's really really helpful to hear. Uh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. That was a really interesting conversation with Paul, giving a perspective that we don't often hear. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. His book, again, is called Hanged If You Do, and it's published by Orpen Press, and we can highly recommend it. See you next time on Stories from Foster Care.